Hello, and welcome to Regrets I've Had a Few. I'm Paul Hunter, Artistic Director of Told by an Idiot, and this is a podcast where I talk to friends and colleagues delving into what made them the person they are today. Hello, and welcome. My guest this month has been a seminal figure in alternative British theatre for more than 30 years. The company he co-founded toured the world and inspired a generation of theatre makers. As a performer and director, he is equally at home on a motorbike in a quarry as he is on some of Britain's most prestigious stages. He has a true punk spirit and is a dear friend. Welcome, Mike Shepherd. Oh, I think that might be the best introduction I've ever had. Well, you can have that, Mike. That is from me to you. That's a, I, I think about these introductions and I was trying to keep it brief because you don't want too much of an introduction, do you? But I'm glad you uh, like it. Um, it's lovely to see you. Uh, it, we normally meet in person. We're obviously, we're Zooming in this occasion. We might touch on how we both feel about Zoom, but not immediately. Um, before I ask what is my usual first question, I'm going to ask a difficult question. And if you can't answer it, it's fine. We might return to it. But Obviously, I didn't mention uh, the company that you co-founded, but it was uh, and remains the glorious Mihai, who I've had the privilege of working with a few times and uh, and such a joyous and extraordinary thing that company was. If you had to try and sum up the spirit of Mihai, what would that be? Well, uh, it's funny, isn't it? You've, you've touched on something here because I, I am. I am a very positive person, but I find making theatre quite often comes out of uh, the, op- the opposite of that. So, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and some of the best theatre I've made, so for example, Dead Dog in a Suitcase, you look at that and you go, well, I don't, I don't want to do that. It's all, you know, the blokes are all rogues and the women are prostitutes and... McHeath gets reprieved and then when when you delve into the naughtiness the naughtiness of that um then but we'll put it this way I never went ah this is knee-high this is easy this is what I want to do dead dog in a suitcase this is this or the the version of the beggar's opera um I know what I'm going to do so quite often I I don't know what to do so um I didn't know what to do. I, for some reason, and oh, God knows why, I wanted to do theatre. My only experience of it was playing Oliver in Sinostal Amateur Dramatic Society. <laughs> it was terrible. We should have put anyone off for life. <laughs> but then I was never allowed to go to drama school. I wasn't university material. Uh, my choices were the military or teachers' training. So I ended up in Balls Park College. Ever heard of it? No, of course you haven't. <laughs> and I I directed Sundime Sweeney Todd and also played three parts in it. And I've just always always had to do it. Uh, and I I have to say I've never thought about it that much. But I started Nehi because I tried to get into the business. I did the whole thing in London. I had a, an agent. And, and it really didn't work for me. And I thought, I, I don't want to go into theatres. I, I don't want to play to theatre audiences. And um, you mentioned the word punk. It was so, it, it was so important to do something 
something different. And uh, I mean, there's more and more pressure, isn't there, as we make work to make work that's going to work. And I kind of willfully immersed myself in stuff that, that really shouldn't work. I mean, I've mentioned Dead Dog in a Suitcase. That was almost impossible to sell. The number of theatres and how many decades have we had now? Of, we've got to attract a new audience, a new theatre audience. Oh, you know, we can't, there's not an audience for that. And I, I maintain, well, there is an audience for it. It's, it's a Dead Dog in a Suitcase audience. And absolutely... There is, but no, it wasn't your standard theatre audience. And Gemma Bodinis and Deborah Aiden weren't your standard theatre producers, if you like, at Liverpool Everyman. They took risks with a joyful anarchy and celebrated not quite knowing what they were doing. So if I had to encapsulate Nia, it, 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 it was punk, punk. We really had to enjoy ourselves we trod all sorts of boundaries of otherness um, my my event of the year was the circus coming to town in Sinostal not Christmas not my birthday as a kid and I used to hang out in the menagerie and look at those kind of exotic those exotic people and I I, I absolutely am not an exotic person but I would <laughs> Regrets, I've had a few. I wish I'd been an exotic person. <laughs> With a few more of those circus skills, actually. But it was that it was that otherness. Just behind me is my is a picture of my mum who died recently. But she booked us into schools, two shows in the morning, two shows in the afternoon. And you know, we were going from six in the morning to God knows what time at um you know, we we then get back and then we rehearse the shows for the public at night. And because we were rehearsing at night and we'd been very polite um, all day in schools, we were we were really impolite. We were we were we were rude. We were naughty. We, we were anarchic. Um, a bit wild, a bit sexy. Well, I think yeah. I think what you've what you've just said is a fantastic. Uh, kind of summing up, I think, of the Nihai spirit, the boundaries of otherness, uh, anarchic joy, the naughtiness, all of these extraordinary things. That, And we'll touch more on Dead Dog in a Suitcase as a show later on, because as you know, I was an enormous fan of that show. I think it was a brilliant, brilliant piece of work, political and visceral and funny and hugely entertaining. But we'll come to that. But I want to take you back, if I may, to the, uh, the, the Oliver you were mentioning in... Uh, in your younger days. And I'm interested, I often ask my guests this, what was your, obviously that was a very early exposure to performing. And you mentioned the circus coming to town. Was that the first, your first, was the circus your first taste of seeing live performance? Or was there other opportunities for to you to see live stuff? Not really as a child, other than my, my parents were kind of, uh, post-war, immediately after the war, they were very much Londoners. Um, they'd had me and my sister. I was still only one, and they they basically came to Cornwall to reinvent themselves. But my mum, for, for some reason, not my sister, just used to take me back um, once a year. I had a granny with a sweet shop in Hammersmith. Result. Mm. Um, <laughs> And she used to take me to shows. So I remember seeing uh, the Water Babies, 
uh -huh. tank in the West End, yeah, water, and Noddy, Noddy and Big Ears. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't say they were inspirations either. <laughs> but and then obviously you 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 were growing up in Cornwall and 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 were there any kind of opportunities within school to perform? Obviously you mentioned Oliver, which obviously was was a, was a thing. There, there there were, and I mean uh, I'm going to say this and get it out there. My God, how much damage the Tories have done! Um, but you know, back in the day, so it's all pre uh, national curriculum, etc. You know, there was a whole drama department at County Hall. There were three drama advisors. There were amazing men like Jerry Finch, who was also the fencing captain. He had long black ringlets. Fencing captain, of course, long black ringlets. He, he played the piano like a dream and he sung opera. And he he was on the camp Campbellne sort of college campus with a lot of roughy old kids. In a nissan hut and you and you came in and he'd be cooking he'd be singing he'd be a total inspiration and i remember doing two things i remember doing the ordinalia at Pyrrhon round when i was 15 and um i remember us doing uh brecht grusha what was a uh, uh, uh caucasian chalk circle caucasian chalk circle um in the moat at pendennis castle so there was this kind of outdoor theatre as well but these inspirational figures that of course all then got cut and I mean the last thing anybody wants anywhere on any staff now is an inspirational figure <laughs> uh, but you, you also mentioned first strings <laughs> you mentioned in your introduction that 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 in a sense even if that interests have been peaked in a variety of ways from from Brett to the circus or whatever, and, and inspirational people, that the choices weren't there necessarily for you to go to drama school and, and, and university wasn't there. And you talked about the military or, or teaching. Can I just ask what you made you choose between the two? Why you didn't go down the military <laughs> option? Oh, then no way, no way. <laughs> no, uh, I didn't buy into that. No, I, oh my God, yeah. And I, I kind of defiantly say, I wasn't a hippie, and then I see pictures of me circa 1970 with <laughs> headband. Of course, I was a hippie, but we did. We were all part of the peace movement, you know. And it was um, a hero was Cassius Clay, Muhammad, Muhammad yeah. Ali, Dylan, Lennon, that whole thing, and and we so fervently believed that we were going to change the world, and. I think we were changing the world. Um, so, yeah, there's no way I'm going into the military, mate. No, no, I couldn't imagine you. Unless we did a really fun production of The Charge of the Light Brigade and you played one of those doddery old generals. I must, must, we must chat about that. Um, but, so, however, you embark on a teaching uh, a career, as you said, yeah. and, you're, uh, and, and, and how long were you actually working as a teacher for? I was very lucky because... Uh, um, to, to work as an artist at that time, I, you could always find somewhere to live in London and in Cornwall. And I started off, my first job was Archway Comprehensive. Um, and I did that for a couple of years. That was tough, but rewarding as well. Um, 
kind of on the perimeter of the school grounds again in a Nissan hut. So I'd got the inspiration, if you like, of Jerry Finch. Um, and I repainted the place because it was it was horrible. I, I put music into it. I showed films. I got a baby belly, belling and cooked delicious snacks. Um, and then the whole, all of the streets were corrugated um, because the, the housing had been cleared for rehousing. So we went out and we did a graffiti project. I mean, you wouldn't be allowed out now. And then the <laughs> then graffiti project with a bit of posing in front of it, which then became a dance. And I had a Polaroid camera as well. And, and then, and then we were kind of away. And I think I learned then about what I think is often negated is that you need stuff, the conditions of creativity. So I'm here at the barns, surrounded by things. Um, and you know, you need you need colour, you need a bit of fresh air, you need a tasty snack, you need um, you know, you, you need things to build things and 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 to inspire. I, I do anyway. I, I'm not one of those people that can sit in a vacuum and have a brilliant idea. But I probably taught in London for three, four years whilst doing other things. I, I sort of then went, you, you could turn up if you fancied teaching, you could turn up at the local office and just teach for a day. And, and then I did the most perfect job in Cornwall. I kind of got headhunted by a headmaster in Mevagizzi, where I'm pretty much from. And he said, oh, I want you to come to the primary school. But I don't want you to have your own class. I want you to take over the schoolhouse. Um, which he previously lived in. So the schoolhouse still had his dog. It had a kitchen with an arger. It had a garden. Uh, he basically said, do, do what you want. So I had, you know, I'd be telling the story of the gingerbread man to infants and cooking them at the same time. Um, we we created history projects, which were to do with the last hundred years. So we 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 did sort of, tea and biscuits and chats with grandparents. We we went to Heligan, which was this lost kind of paradise. So we'd be there all day. We'd be building dens, doing drama, doing poetry, bit of maths, traffic sensors. Uh, <laughs> I used to call kids out in fishing boats. It was- But, all, but all, all, all of what you describe in a sense, when you talk about the school in Archway and then the, the, the school in Mavagissi, and your and I look at the barns where I've had the pleasure and joy to rehearse and spend time with you. All feels kind of like the almost the genesis and principles of Nehi, the idea of welcoming and and nurturing and holding people together. That that's clearly something that obviously is in you. But even though you 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 weren't in the Nehi, you hadn't created that yet. It felt like all the principles were in place. Is that fair enough? To, Definitely, yeah, definitely. And again, to do with those conditions of creativity, and to, to, and I mean, we all aspire to aspire to be generous, you know. Um, I mean, round here, you probably remember it. There's a wall. Yeah, I try to avoid the colour black here. <laughs> there is a red wall, and on that wall, it says, "Generosity, wonder, play, irreverence, anarchy," and generosity is the top is the top world a, a top word i think we we've all got to you know in our everyday lives try to be generous yeah. which is a challenge and also i think that which i always think of nehi and it's obviously something that we 
place a huge importance on at Told by Nunez. I think that generosity in the making of something, in the playing of something, and in the sharing of something with an audience. I always feel those things were so central to to the Nihai kind of values. But how did so how did Nihai come about? How did you how did you actually get together and then do that first piece of theatre? Um I wasn't I certainly wasn't looking for um through a spotlight magazine, but I was looking for for people um that were interesting. So it's funnily enough, I've just done a little mini festival here at the Barnes where there's been a Christmas show for, for, for local children. There's been an amazing uh, singing group. There's been Anna Maria Murphy with her unbelievable exaggerated stories. Uh, there's been Caroline, Caroline Ada doing her a Nancy. And there's been somebody called Dave Min uh, doing his one person Christmas carol. Well, Dave Min was one of the first Nii people and that came about by I was walking around Tesco's and I was going I wonder who there's all this witty um slightly naughty sign writing advertising the latest cheeses or whatever with little cartoons and I thought who is who's writing that so I asked <laughs> in the store to meet him and we became we sort of became great mates um and then and then Charlie Barnicott uh, was a local farmer and just a natural um, just a natural actor um, and yeah he came for I, I don't know why I keep mentioning Sinostal Amateur Dramatic Society because it certainly wasn't an inspiration but he clearly was really really competent competent so he became a brilliant straight man and and the first thing we did was Mac Frisch's Fire Raisers yes a great play a great yeah. I've been in that it's a great play yeah so Charlie Barnacan of Biederman, who's the man who's absolutely paranoid that his business is 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 threatened and his household by the arsonists. And then I was Eisenring, who was one of the arsonists. So that felt like the perfect beginning for me. I um, and where where were you playing? Where did the show play? Well, that that funnily enough did play indoors in village halls and things, but. The next show was The Adventures of Awful Can Awful about the world's greatest stuntman. With <laughs> <laughs> a remarkably fit chap who's just come back from Australia and he's got to be in his mid 60s, but he's still running the cliffs. Um, he he was the world veteran, veteran triathlete champion a guy yeah. called John Mergler, and he was incredibly fit. And we used to do these preposterous, um, I was going to say they looked highly dangerous, but they were bloody dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> these stunts off the cliff, homemade, off the harbours, you said homemade, homemade pyrotechnics, and then we'd bring people... Um, get someone to put up a tent to a tent and seek people on straw bales for the evening. Um, that first show and the very first um, performance of the I got um, arrested at the end of it. <laughs> PC Burstow was at the, the, the show was in the round with four exits. And every time I came off, PC Burstow went Oi! and would take <laughs> me around. I managed to keep going to the end of the show, even entering when I wasn't supposed to be on. Um, and and then yeah, he put me in a headlock <laughs> <laughs> on my back and marched me off because apparently I didn't have a performance license. 
That makes me think that is so brilliant. That makes me think of two things. It makes me think of a, one of my favourite Danny Kay films is a film that ends with him being chased by the baddies and the police in a theatre and he ends up on stage in an opera and as singing the tune of the opera, he improvises to the police. They're coming to get me, they're coming to get me. <laughs> So I can't remember what it's called, but the thought of you being a jester, is it? No, it, no, it's I don't know what oh, the one when he's got his dead. Anyway, we'll 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 find that out. We can let our listeners know to search that up. But um, and also I have to say it's not the first time that you've been accosted by people. I, I, I'm I'm thinking much further down the line in Nehi when you were accosted by, you told the story of being accosted by what sounded like an old brigadier in Stratford for. Yeah. What, for what you would, what he perceived you were doing to Shakespeare, but we'll we'll come to that later. Um, uh, I suppose my next thought. So you get going, and the, the, you're performing indoors, outdoors. I just wonder what the influence of Footspan was for you, because obviously they came slightly before you, didn't they? Can you talk a bit about that? Footspan were a huge inspiration. Again, you know the the that that alternative lifestyle, that stepping stepping beyond they were that yeah they put on fantastic event um and then they they were still like comedia where they'd still rock up on a harbor with a simple stage and and the work was 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 bloody funny and physical um certainly in those days early days that they were a huge inspiration uh, and also um I remember when they when when they went on Southwest Television because um, they left sort of two years before Nei started and they they tore their Southwest Arts grant check in half <laughs> <laughs> and, and they just and then they just set off across Europe you know they ended up in Portugal where they were singing for their supper and then. They were adopted by France, where I mean, some sort of footspan still exists, but that young footspan were ah, oh, they were they were fantastic, uh, brilliant, daring work. Yeah, so huge inspiration. It's a, it's important, isn't it, when you we get often asked about this and and the influence that that people have on what you do, and and I suppose the equivalent. You footspan view the equivalent for us was complicity, which I've talked about many times. But you know that 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 influence doing stuff that we haven't seen before, and John Wright introducing us to that. But um, but obviously Nehi went from strength to strength, and I'd like to obviously now I think about when we first met because uh, it was when you were doing a wonderful Nick Dark play, The Riot, at the National Theatre, and then from my agent I said oh, uh, oh you've got an audition to meet Mike Shepherd at the National with Nehi and of course I'd heard of Nehi and King of Prussia at Donmar and you know so I knew who you were and and uh, I remember meeting you and it, it I, I felt like we clicked and everything then of course obviously you didn't offer me the job which I, I absolutely I fair enough understand. Yeah, I but the, um, the, <laughs> <laughs> the journey after I remember coming to see the show and enjoying it very much and and Emma was in it. Emma Rice was in the production, I think. Yeah, amongst with some other brilliant performance. And then, brilliantly, you you, I, you did remember me. And then a couple of years later, you were reviving the wonderful Red Shoes, Emma's mm. first big main show directed for for Neha. And uh, you asked me, to, would I be interested? And of course, I was. And I jumped on a train from London, and you said, "Come to the Barnes." And I'd never travelled south of Bristol, 
So <laughs> as we got further south and we got past Plymouth, I thought, blimey, where am I going? And then you picked me up in St. Austin and you drove me to this place in the barns. And and I, I think I was a bit open, I was open mad. And obviously there was this extraordinary place. And then you we chatted and you and Emma said, let's go to the pub for lunch. We walked around the back of the barns and there was the ocean. And I think I said to you, we've just been rehearsing under a flyover in West Grove. <laughs> so to see this extraordinary home that you had nurtured and created, and, and that was my first experience of, of working with you, and, and uh, which was glorious. But I wonder, it, it, at what point did it become clear that Emma was wanting to make that transition into directing? Because she was such a great performer as well. But was knee high, was Red Shoes the tipping point for her? No, she, she came in... Uh... And she, she'd got a brilliant kind of training. She'd learned from Mike Alfreds. She was had been part of Alibi, so had done a lot of that school's work and storytelling work, um, and had a slightly, um, slightly traumatic time, I believe, in Gardenica in Poland. But had really yes. learned from that as well. And I mean, she describes it where she came and. Um, she described us as kind of gypsies sat around a fire and this that, and the other and it it was it was very much anything goes and uh she she definitely added real rigor um in terms of the physicality not the physicality so much but the emotional depth of of work um mm. and she was um i'm sure she won't mind me saying this and we'll see her later we're going to the lucky chance in Froome, but she was really bossy, and me and Bill, the, the great were running the company <laughs> at the time. God, she's got to, she's got to direct. So we were always looking for other people to direct, and the first thing she directed, and and that was was brilliant. It was before the Red Shoes, was a version of the Changeling called the Itch, and and we were becoming a little kind of uncomfortable, the outdoor work, we suddenly realized that we were playing to fairly wealthy audiences with their picnic hampers coming for this, that, that bloody word that gets overused, this quirky theater company that is delightful. And then suddenly they're coming along and there's this show called The Itch where, you know, one of the greatest villains of all time, De Flores, they're having sex up against the, crucifix while stabbing each other to death um, <laughs> that got rid of that audience <laughs> and then came and then came the red shoes but she's quite was quite clearly a, a really brilliant natural director uh, i loved her performances if she was part of this zoom she would do herself down as an actor but i think she just had a brilliant clarity and simplicity and I I totally agree, Mike. I totally agree. My memories of seeing Emma in shows and w was exactly that. I thought she was wonderfully playful and in a great energy and, and as you say, a sort of simplicity. But but then obviously once I'd kind of connected and we'd become pals, I, I, I kind of, you know, there was such an extraordinary period for, for the company, wasn't there? I mean, both here and internationally, all over the place. And, and, a, and a world of extraordinary shows, which many listeners will uh, will know from Tristan and Zolt uh, to what, one of my favourites, the Back Eye, which I adored, um, and that kind of, you know, it just felt like 
it felt like being in an audience around that time where it, in some ways it felt more like people who followed the band, you know, the energy and passion that people have for music sometimes it doesn't always translate to theatre, but whenever I was seeing that, that a lot of your shows, that's what I felt in the audience. It was like, oh, the next album had come out or the next kind of, and uh, I think that's for me what it felt like. What it felt like when you, suddenly you were, you know, obviously you toured internationally before, but did it feel like you were, were you conscious that you were in quite a special period for the company that I'm referring to? Or does it just, you know, the show followed show sort of thing? No, it was a special, it was definitely a special time. And my God, in 2023, looking back, you go, oh my God, we were blessed. You know, there was Cymbeline in Colombia in Brazil at the same time as Rapunzel in New York, at the same time as Brief Encounter in the West End, the same time as Blast in Cornish Village Halls. Um, it, 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 that feels incomprehensible now to, you know, no. to try and understand that. It, but, no, I'm sure, and it, 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 as you say, sometimes the stars align in such a way with things that you, you don't want to think about it too much, but it, it does become a special time. At this point in, in the podcast, it's time to go to our Ask an Idiot question. So let's see what uh, a listener wants to ask Mike uh, this, this episode. Hi, Mike. My name is Harry, and I'd like to ask, if there's one piece of advice you could go back and give your younger self, what would it be? Oh, good question, Harry. One piece of advice. Cool. Um, that's hard, Harry, for me because I, I'm not a great believer in advice. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure how much. Uh, uh, um, uh, I, 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 I've always wanted to work instinctively. Uh, I've always, I, I've always listened to other people. Uh, for example, the wonderful. John Wright and 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 learn from them, um, but uh, the advice to my younger self would be um, keep arrogance, and arrogance is is a bad word, isn't it? Oh, he's an arrogant so and so, but arrogance means means for me as well a a real belief because I think particularly in the theatre world or the arts now um, there are there is so much pressure. So my advice would be stay arrogant. Um, don't ever judge an idea. Don't concern yourself whether an idea is good, bad or indifferent. Take that idea for a hop, skip and a jump. But um, that's not giving advice to myself because that's what I did. So, well, well, I, I, I think it's great advice. It's really, 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 really on the nail, I think. So Mike, I'd like to come now to where we started in a way. You touched on a glorious show, uh, Dead Dog in a Suitcase, uh, with a collaboration with the wonderful Carl Gross, who you worked with for many, many years, and obviously so have we at The Idiots. Um, and we had the, the, the good fortune at that time when you just opened it to be working together with the brilliant Joe Wright on, uh, on, on his pan movie. So we were hanging out that glorious summer in yeah. some field in Bedford and you just opened. I remember you came to, 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 the, to the, the shoot and the, to the set and you showed me these images and I thought, wow, it looks amazing. And then I finally got to see it on a couple of occasions and I just thought it was such a, genuinely such a brilliant fusion of things. That's what struck me. And I, I love the fierce politics of the piece as well. But as I said, at the same time, aligned with, real wild 
entertainment and you know all, all mixed together and 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 you often talk about which I, you said earlier which i really like is not necessarily knowing what something's going to be or how you're going to do it and but that that piece which again toured globally how much of that was all i suppose what i'm saying is how much of that was about the combination of personality because you had the great charles hazelwood of course so how much of that was about the people that were around you i suppose yeah i mean you you build brilliant creative teams i love a creative team around me and the different eras of me you've mentioned emma we we there's bill mitchell you mentioned nick nick dark and this era with carl who actually came to the company initially as an apprentice um, and is a, another brilliant performer, um, but is a fantastic writer. So a combination of Carl, Charlie Hazelwood, Etta Murphy, I, yeah. I love working with from, from Matthew Bourne. She was sort of um, just sat on your shoulder and you'd be rehearsing some, she'd be going, well, that's not very good that bit, is it, Mike? And I said, no, got any ideas? No, not in the moment. <laughs> and we were just all the time trying to make things, trying to make things better. And then Sarah Wright with the with the puppetry. Yeah. Um, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd mentioned before things often come from adversity, but that piece, I go, okay, so what is it about this piece that that does interest me? And it and it was to do with the politics, and it was to do with John Gay, and his furious sort of reaction to the ruling classes and the aristocrat aristocratic masses going going to you know italian opera and swung about so he went right i'm going to take the songs of the street from the beggars and make this beggars opera um so it it was sort of profoundly political and having a go at at, at everybody really and punch and judy you know all our background with Polchinello and Commedia and that you know that was clearly on the streets at the time incidentally I've just been performing Punch and Judy with Sarah Wright for local audiences and thinking oh my god this is probably really inappropriate um you know throw the baby out the window <laughs> whacking each other but somehow that kind of you know the frustration we have all got at the moment with what's going on and our inability to do anything about it that kind of yeah. anarchy that kind of revolution so it comes back to punk again and all those things were in it for me with 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 dead dog and but i suppose i mean that's a, it, it, as i said i saw it a couple of times and adored it and and then it for me and not that you thought it like this but it felt like it began a kind of trilogy of shows with followed by the tin drum and and uh and ubu uh yeah. both of which i adored and this kind of it almost felt like they sat together as a as a kind of yeah but mini body of work that I I found so alive and so dynamic and also very prescient. It felt like they're quite timely in a way, which of course you can't plan for. But my my feeling and bringing my kids and Sarah and Dexter and Elsie to see Uber at Christmas in Shoreditch Town Hall and Dexter said, "Dad, this is great," you know, <laughs> and he's a you know he's not a. He's not an avid theatre goer. In the, he'd rather watch the football, of course. But uh, he, he he clearly loved that, and I think that it did push those things. And then I think about more recently. You know, we get together, we chat all the time, and we see each other. I mean, mutual pals and all that kind of stuff. And 
you know, coming down to the barns to, to work with you for a week was such a joy when you were developing your Calvino thing. And I hope I'm allowed to mention the beginnings of an idea around Grimaldi that you're cooking okay. up, which, yeah. and I think that also sounds for me brilliantly commedia, the, the notion of where that sits somehow, both those ideas, but especially Grimaldi. And I was reminded before we started talking of a brilliant quote by Jacques Lecoq. I think he describes commedia the best I've heard, where he says, commedia contains all the essentials of life, uh trying to eat trying to procreate mm. and trying desperately to avoid death yeah and I, <laughs> I think that kind of captures it and i think i look forward to whatever your journey is with the grimaldi because i think it's, it's i know it's been around for a while and it's a perfect project mike as we come draw to a close i always end by asking my guests seven rapid fire questions sure. you, you say the first thing that comes into your head um, here we go. Tony Ben or Tony Blair? Tony Ben. <laughs> the next question is a fantasy question. Five wickets at Lords or the winning goal for Plymouth Fargal in the Cup final? Five wickets at Lords. <laughs> Motorbike or campervan? Motorbike. Tom Waits or Bob Dylan? Tom Waits. Hesitate or demonstrate? Hesitate. Uh, cheese fondue or cheese souffle? What's the first one? Fondue or souffle? Fondue or souffle? Or souffle, I think. Tilda Swinton or Juliette Binoche? Tilda Swinton. Mike, it's been an absolute joy and people are going to be so pleased to enjoy hearing you talk so passionately about something you've done so brilliantly and continue to do so brilliantly. So thank you for sharing your time and we'll get together and uh, and have one of our regular beers very soon. Brilliant. So cheers, Paul. Uh, I'm Paul. Cheers, Mike. See you later. <laughs> Take care. Cheers, mate. Bye. Dear listeners, if you've enjoyed this idiot podcast, please spread the word.